My Bible's open to Romans 7, and if you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we would love to collect those, and we'll be praying for you this week. We're so grateful for the visitors uh, who have come. I'm grateful for those taking the 90-day challenge to come be with us for three months, hear the preaching, um, and ask basic questions, or is this church pointing me to a personal relationship with Christ, and am I learning more about the Bible, and do these people really love each other? And I pray that all answer to all of those questions is yes, uh, I see that. And so keep coming, and we're glad that you're with us. Sin's sinister deception of God's good law. In reading the Gospels this week, I came across a statement of Jesus, it's in Matthew and Mark, in which he said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when I think about the life and ministry of Jesus, indeed, he came to serve and to give and to love, and he did more than we could even imagine, and that he gave his life as a ransom for many, which seems to be a particular focus that his redemption was fully effective to redeem his people. But that word ransom came to my mind. Um, the, the word is um, a ransom or a price paid for redeeming captives, loosening them from their bonds and setting them at liberty. It applies spiritually to the ransom paid by Jesus Christ for the delivering of men and women from the bondage of sin and death. He came to pay a ransom to deliver us. Who's in bondage? Who needs to be set free? This word ransom is a rich word in understanding God's salvation. Who needs to be ransomed? The short answer is sinners like you and like me. And so this mission statement of Jesus reminded me of the journey that we've been taking through the book of Romans as Paul the apostle has presented in a systematic way why the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news to us. In Romans, we have come to see that the bondage of our sin and the only remedy that can set us free is found at the cross. In our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul shows that it is good for us to know our sin, to know it, and it's dangerous not to know what our sin is. And the means that God gives to us to show us what our sin is, is the law. John Piper's words have been ringing in my mind all week. There's a great pain that comes to the soul and to the marriage and to the family and to the church and to the world from not tasting the pain of knowing our sin. There, are great, there is great self-destruction that comes from not experiencing the self-devastation of, of knowing our sin. There is an eternal loss that comes from not uh, losing our pride and the knowledge of our sin. If there's any hope and any faith and any joy and peace and love, it will come from knowing our sin. Seems the direct opposite. But knowing our sin is the reason the gospel is good news to us. It's the reason why the cross is our glory. And so, with those thoughts, I enter into Romans 7 
7 through 12. And I read this last night at family worship and comments came like, I understood some, but there's a lot in there I don't understand. And I said, well, give me till tomorrow morning. So I would like to present this paragraph with the following thoughts. The first is a question. Has Romans given us a conflicting message about the law? Is the law good or bad? Is the book of Romans given us a conflicting message about the law? Is it good or is it bad? I could understand at this point in our study of Romans, you might think the law is something I need to die to. I mean, after all, Paul says as much in verse four. Likewise, my brothers, you have also have died to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, we say it with trembling care that the law bars us from marrying Jesus Christ which is an awkward image, but is the image given to us here, which is why he gives the marriage illustration in verses two and three. We've died to the law to be united with another. And he is our hope and our stay. And if we were to go back through the previous chapters, maybe I would ask you to turn a page or two and just look at a few of them with me. Romans three through, or three chapter, chapter three, verse 20. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That's a negative statement in the sense that it doesn't have the power to save or to to deliver verse 21 of Romans 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. So God's righteousness has been manifested apart from the law because we can never know that righteousness. So he's speaking of it being revealed in Christ. In Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In chapter 4, the promise of Abraham, verse 13, tells us, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In chapter 5, verse 20, as we're inching our way back to chapter 7, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. That doesn't sound good. The the, The advent of the law, the revelation of the law, increasing sin... Romans 6.14, for sin shall not be master over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Talking to believers. And then in Romans 7.5, as we come full circle, for a while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law. We're at work in the members of our body to produce the fruit of death. And so this doesn't sound... Good at all. What appears to be negative or bad, what appears to to be something we need to be delivered from, has a purpose, and that is to expose our hopeless condition apart from Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12 of Romans 7. We'll get there. We'll close with this. And this is a wonderful text to lead us to the Lord's table, which we will move from the word to that wonderful expression of our faith in the bread and the cup. But verse 12 says, so the law is holy and the commandment is is holy and righteous and what? Good. So no, it's not a conflicting message. Uh, It's the, the law does not save us, but that doesn't mean that's a bad thing. It means it holds the standard of God. So how can we meet the righteousness expressed in the law? And the beautiful good news is that we can be counted righteous and declared righteous through the finished work of Jesus Christ who never broke the law at one point. 
Maybe you've been thinking, you know, all this talk about sin, this sounds like a really negative place to be. <laughs> you can't, can't go through Romans without dealing with these things. I was reminded of um, a seminary professor who also was a frequent guest preacher at various churches uh, in his area. And on one particular Sunday, he was preaching on Romans and he was expounding on the law, how we've fallen short of the law. And he was stripping away all the veil of human uh, wickedness. And after the service, when he had gone to the back of the church, a woman approached him and she was holding up her hand like this. And she said uh, to the professor, when you preach today, you make me feel about this big. And he replied, that's too big. <laughs> Don't you know that that much self-righteousness will take you to hell? That's the shock value of what we're talking about with the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ plus nothing. This much self-righteousness will condemn you. The law was given to strip away all self-righteousness so that we might embrace Jesus Christ as our only righteousness and his righteousness is imparted, imputed to us by grace through faith in him alone. Secondly, without the law, I would not know my sin. Verse seven, what shall we say then? Paul likes to ask these questions. That the law is sin? What's the answer to that without even looking? No, no, that's not, by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, my sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So a couple of things I would want to mention here is that and Romans has addressed this already in chapter five, that before the Mosaic law, there was no law. Does that mean there was no sin? No, sin was alive and well on the planet as we read about in the days of Noah and many other uh, places. But what it's saying is that when the law was established, it revealed once and for all that standard. There was a revelation of nature in a general sense, but when the law of Moses came, God spoke and thou shalt not terms. And maybe you're thinking, well, you know, maybe it would just be better to be ignorant of it all. Ignorance does not liberate our soul. To be ignorant is a, a, of God's standards is a sign of being lost. To be without hope and to walk in darkness, groping for some meaning and purpose. It wouldn't be better to be ignorant of it all. Why would we ever want to send a missionary anywhere on the planet if ignorance was a good thing? So the whole purpose of Jesus Christ coming into the world is that light would shine into darkness and darkness comprehended it not. When Peter preached at Pentecost, he said, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, speaking to his fellow Jews, you acted in ignorance as also your ru rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, repent therefore and be converted so that your sins may be blotted out. And then we read Paul's statement at, in Athens that the times of ignorance are over. They've been over for 2,000 years. And that God's message to this generation and any generations to come is to repent 
because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And who is that man? The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ignorance of God's law is not bliss. It reveals our lostness. You and I should hunger and thirst to know the word of God. So when does Paul mean to say that people without the law do not have any awareness of sin? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think people deal with guilty consciences, tormented consciences, seared consciences, troubled hearts. They know things are not right, but don't know where to look for the remedy and maybe aren't even interested in it. He says the law reveals sin. Romans 3.20, the knowledge of sin is through the law. Not only that, the law provokes my desires and my covetousness. He says, I would not have known sin apart from the law, for I would not have known what it is to covet. Isn't that interesting? What commandment is that? Of the ten. It's the tenth commandment. And it's interesting he would point to that. He mentions covet, which is, the Greek word here is epithumeo, which means desires. And he forbids in the 10th commandment, coveting, desiring what others have. And of all the commandments, it's, it's interesting because it speaks of the issues of the heart. The law gives us unequaled help in defining our sin with an impassioned plea, we're to know what it is. And here he talks about the desires of our heart. Would you think for a moment of the desires of your heart? Someone may cavalierly say, you know, I, I've kept the Ten Commandments. In fact, we'll look at one in the Bible in just a minute. I've kept them all. I never pulled the trigger. I've never been involved in adultery. I've never stolen anything or lied. It's hard to imagine someone could even say that. I've heard people say that with a straight face. I say, you've got to be kidding me. That's my response. You've got to be kidding me. Are you serious? But think of your desires. Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you, you would think, yeah, if I don't go to church, maybe I'll be ignorant enough and my conscience won't bother me. Bother me. That's, a, that's the way a fool thinks. I need to be in the word and guided by the word. My conscience needs to be trained by the word of God. I need to know what God's standards are. And of all the sins that Paul could refer to, he mentions the sin of covetousness. And when the law came alive at his conversion, not as a Pharisee, at his conversion, he... He began to see his sin in full, full and living color. And so there's an importance here, if you would just think with me for a moment, at the importance of knowing God's law so you and I just don't dismiss, well, no one's perfect. I'm just going to go ahead and live. And um, I don't want to really have to think about that kind of stuff. That's not the Christian life. Well, that sounds pretty hard. Welcome to, the, welcome to the walk. Welcome to the race. With an impassioned plea, if you'd allow me one more time to quote John Piper here. How can you really know the power of temptation and the desires of your heart? 
In this case, he holds up the sin of lust, which has slaughtered its millions. To look at internet nudity, pornography. If you've never given in and experienced it, how can you really know the power of it? And then he he goes on to share this little parable about three men and you supply, ladies, the sin in your life or whatever the sin may be for you. It may be eating. It may be any desire that takes you over the threshold of God meeting our needs to idolatry and other things. You just plug in your sin. But let me hold up internet pornography and nudity in this parable. And so there are three men. And each of, of the three men stands beside a pit a hole of lewdness and sin. And three ropes extend out of the pit, one bound around each man's waist, trying to pull them in to the pit. And the strength of this narrow cord is a 100-pound test. So the first man begins to, to be pulled into the pit and look, that looks exciting. The pit looks inviting. To the flesh, but he knows it's deadly. Five pounds of pressure, 10 pounds, 15 pounds. He resists, he fights back, 20 pounds, 25. He digs into his heels with all his might. He's resisting this temptation, 30 pounds, 35 pounds. And the rope starts to squeeze and he stops resisting and he jumps in, click of the mouse. The second man begins to be pulled into the pit. Five pounds of pressure, 10 pounds, 15 pounds. He resists and fights back. 20 pounds, 25 pounds. He digs in his heels, 35, 40. And the rope starts to squeeze. He says, no, and fights back. 40 pounds, 45 pounds, 50 pounds. It's hard to breathe on the rope and the rope tightens around his stomach and it begins to hurt 60 pounds and he stops resisting and he jumps into the pit, click of the mouse. And the third man begins to be pulled into the pit. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 pounds of pressure. He resists, he fights back. 30, 35, 40 and the rope starts to squeeze. He says, no, no. And he fights back, 50 pounds, 60, it's harder to breathe as the rope tightens around his stomach and begins to hurt 70 pounds and his feet start to slip toward the pit and he cries out for help, Lord help me. And he reaches out to grab a branch in the shape of a cross. In the distance, he sees his, his wife going about her business, trusting him. He sees his children playing and in their hearts admiring him. And beyond them, beyond them all, he sees Jesus Christ with a gash in his side, with both hands lifted and fists clenched and smiling and filled with passion. And the third man holds fast, 75, 80, 85. And the rope cuts into his sides and the pain stabs 90, 95 and the tears flow unbidden down his cheeks 100 and the rope snaps but there's no click of the mouse. You follow the pressure of that? 
You feel the way, doesn't that happen to every one of us in this room? At one level or another, with one sin or another? Which of these men knew the power of temptation? The one who saw through to the end. Our desires are powerful. They're to be yielded to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the battle God's called us to wage with our, the world and the flesh and the devil. Notice with me thirdly. The law reveals my true spiritual condition. Verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity through the command, commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Man, Paul says, when I came, and I think this was upon his conversion, when he began to see the law in, in its right form, and he began to think, thou shalt not covet. And it just began to, his heart be, became revealed to him as, as being an idol factory, coveting this and coveting that. This focuses on our inward nature. Someone may claim in a superficial way, I've kept the first nine. But the last commandment exposes the thoughts and intents of the heart. Paul speaks of our personal discovery as soon as he came to understand the depths of what this was saying and that this was indeed God's standard. It aroused him with all sorts of sinful desires. The law declared not to covet, and it brought Paul to see those desires. So without the law, sin goes unnoticed, unknown. It's dormant. Some sins may not even present trouble until they're identified and condemned by the law. Have you ever read the Bible and you saw a principle or a straightforward command? And you said, well, I never, I never saw that. And I'm doing this, and this is out of order, and it's got to go. That's how we should read the Bible. Often we read the Bible and we think, well, that's what so-and-so needs to read. That's what she needs to hear. That's a bad way to read the Bible. Without the law, sin goes unnoticed, unknown. We're called to receive Christ by faith. But we can receive something and not like it. And the call to become a follower of him is to receive him as the treasure of our life and realizing he's got a call on each one of us to live for him now. I thought of the rich young ruler. His story's told in Matthew and Mark as well. And in Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 17, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man came up to him and kneeled before him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a question. You think, wow, this guy's in the bag. He's in. And, um, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. Jesus isn't uh, rejecting his deity. Uh, he's just saying human standards don't carry the day. Uh, God is the only one who is good in his evaluations, what's most important. So you know the commandments Jesus said, do not murder, do not, do not commit adultery, do not steal, don't, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the young man said, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth up. Oh boy. There's someone who doesn't know the law who should know the law. I've kept them from my youth up. 
And I love this in the text. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You ever wonder if Christ loved the lost? There's a picture, an example of him loving the lost. He loved him. And put his finger on his sin, which was he loved money. He said, okay, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and come follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. But disheartened, can you see the countenance fall? (laughs) Because he had many possessions, he turned and walked away. And so is Jesus calling everyone to sell everything they have and give to the poor? No, we know that's not true. What Jesus was doing in this situation was revealing to this young man his covetousness his greed, his love for money. And we know that because in the following paragraph, he went to the disciples and he said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed and Jesus said to them, children, how how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, it's... It's the exaggeration at face value. Take a real camel, take a real needle, and what's the likelihood of that beast going through the eye of that needle? It's impossible. That's the point. You can't be saved by your money, by your good works, by anything you've accumulated in this world. And that's why Jesus would say, the the disciples said, well, who could be saved? And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. That's right. It is impossible for you and I ever to be saved apart from God's work of grace. But with God, for all things are possible with him, even for you. If you would surrender to him this day and give your heart and life to him and follow him, he would save you. He would save you now, which leads us fourthly. And then to the table. But fourthly, the law brings me to the end of myself. It brings me to the end of myself. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What in the world does that mean? Well, before we grasp, before uh, uh, Paul and us by implication grasp the weight of God's law and our revealed sin, we, we thought all is well. Peace, peace, we said to ourselves. Look at our barns. Look at our property. Look at, look at how things are going well in our family. I don't need God. Oh yeah, I would never voice that. But I'm living as if that's true. And once alive, apart from the law, has been interpreted in many different ways. But Paul is confessing that he had been alive apart from the law. And here he was, a highly trained, zealous Pharisee. And he was certainly not apart from the law. He knew it backwards and forwards and sideways. Isn't that something? You can know something cerebrally, cognitively, and be lost as a goose. He was an expert on the law. In fact, if you want to read his his spiritual resume, you can read it in Philippians 3. But throughout all his years of proud religious service, Paul had served only the letter of the law, not the spirit of the law. And when a true understanding came, 
the light came on and his sin came alive. And he came to realize his true spiritual condition that had brought him to the end of himself. And he died in the sense of his realizing that all his religious accomplishments were nothing but a manure pile, which is the word he uses in Philippians 3. So the point is that God's purpose for the law was to give life. And it was broken early on when Adam and Eve took of the fruit and catapulted the, the human race into sin. And we've broken the law. So the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, he says in verse 10. When we understand what the law demands and how we fall short of it, then we also come to understand that we have broken the law, we are sinners, we have transgressed over the line, and eternal judgment waits us. The commands give to show people the way we are to live, God's law. The Lord said to Moses in Deuteronomy 30 after repeating the law, it was given in the moral code of the Ten Commandments and expanded on that, and Moses reiterated it all in Deuteronomy. Deutero means two, nomos means law, a second telling of the law is what Deuteronomy means. And at the end of this second telling of the law, Deuteronomy 30, it says, see, I have set before you today life and good and death and evil. What's the difference? How do I know life and good and between death and evil? And then he goes on to say, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you will live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering into. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. And then he closes this by saying, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Choose life. Notice verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Sin's sinister deception regarding God's good law. What does sin promise? It promises to satisfy our desires even even more than the last time. Sin promises that our actions can be kept a secret. But God says, surely your sin will find you out. Sin promises that we won't have to worry about the consequences. That's the lie of the year. That's the lie of human history. Don't believe that. Sin carries with it a mean stick. Sin promises special benefits that that never deliver. Sin promises power, recognition, popularity in exchange for cooperation and compromise. In the Garden of Eden, the serpent deceived Eve by taking her focus off the freedom she had and putting it on the restriction that God had given. And since that time, we've been rebels ever since. So, Paul concludes this by saying, don't forget this. Of all the things I've said about the law, the law itself is holy and right and good, verse 12 tells us. It reflects the character and will of God 
who is holy. And the commandments define sin, but are not sin. And so I would just close with this as we think about the law and using it together with the term we use most often, the word of God. That we would say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Oh, how we love his word. For it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And the law awakens us to our sinfulness and shows us our need for a savior. It shows us our need for a savior. And once we process, I'm guilty here and I'm guilty there. I've broken the law here and I've broken it there. Who am I really going to live for? And there we find great hope that Jesus Christ came into this world, was tempted in every way like we are, never fell into the pit of any sin, died on the cross as our faithful and all-sufficient substitute, that by faith in him, I know the righteousness of God through him. When God looks at a believing sinner trusting in Jesus Christ, he does not see their sin, he sees the righteousness of his son, which is glorious news for us who fall in the pit more times than we could number. And so one of the ways that we declare this beautiful picture of salvation and redemption is through the Lord's Supper. And I'm gonna ask the deacons to come forward and join me here at the front and kind of lead us in a time of preparation as we prepare to eat of the bread and drink of the cup it's a time to confess our sins, to confess our sins. I'm thinking of Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he said in verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What a, what a moment this is for us as a church, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, to come to this table Later in the same chapter, Paul says, you need to examine yourself before you eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does that mean? Well, it's a time of confessing our sins. It's a time of being right with God. And then Paul gives one of the most arresting of warnings. He says, that's the reason some of you are sick and some have died. Why? Taking lightly the things of God in this way. Uh, that's sobering. So we need to confess our sins and to examine our hearts. And that's what I want to do right now as we prepare to take of the bread and the cup. Would you bow with me in prayer? We know from our time in God's word that the law of God reveals the standard of God and that we've broken it and that we're called to confess our sins, that this is a, a beautiful thing in the believer's life to confess our sins, and I just was thinking of several that come to my mind. Um, the whole issue of rebellion and lawlessness that we see practiced around us. 
God would put within our heart a longing to obey him, to not go with the flow, but to, Lord, I don't want to be a rebel, Lord, and we confess that to you. And maybe this morning that's been brought to your attention. I'm rebelling in this area. I'm chafing in this area. Maybe it's immorality. Maybe there are clicks of the mouse or the touchpad this week that have brought shame to your heart. It's a good thing you would feel that way. And the remedy is to run to Christ. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's prescription drugs. Maybe it's illicit drugs. And you know it's not right. Maybe it's laziness that's really hindered your testimony and put you in binds in so many areas of your life when God has called us to be diligent. Maybe you're a complainer, a grumbler, a mocker. We read in Scripture, we're to do all things without complaining. It's so easy to complain. And nothing reveals an ungrateful heart and a discontent heart than grumbling a graceless heart. Maybe you've worried more this week and been anxious than you have been trusting and resting in the Lord and His promises. We're commanded in Scripture, be anxious for nothing. Maybe you have a thought life that's just off the rails and you need a new beginning. You need a new start. You need to be reminded of what's right And hope that you can press on. And so we come to the table. Lord, we thank you so much for what the bread and the cup represent. Your body given over for us. Your blood shed for us. That we might be forgiven forever. And our salvation will never be determined by our performance. Only upon your performance, which was perfect. Thank you for paying it all, Lord, all to you. We owe, and it's in your name we pray, amen. One final word before the deacons serve us this morning is who's invited to the table? That's a big question. And, and the answer to that is those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and have followed him in believer's baptism. These are basic um, commands, basic uh, identification of what a true believer is in the Bible. And so if you're a believer who followed the Lord in believer's baptism, you're invited to come. And uh, for those who haven't, we would just ask in integrity that you would allow the plate to go by. Um, You know, I think all of us have a longing for everyone to be included. But Jesus said, narrow is the way that leads to life. Few there are who find it. Maybe this Lord's Supper would be an evangelistic pull and tug on your heart to surrender to him and follow him. And we pray that it would have that impact on you because there's nothing we would want more than for you to join us at this table. One other matter I would say is when you get the cup, uh, this morning we do it in several ways as we observe the Lord's Supper, but this morning when you get the cup, uh, don't wait for a cue from me. I want us thinking about the Lord. And as you're led of the Holy Spirit collectively as we're led, eat of the bread and drink of the cup, Um, as we 
remember him together. And there'll be no cue for you to do that. And then we'll gather uh, again for a closing, responding in faith. And, um, but for now, our focus is on Christ and our deacons will serve us at this time.